we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, we've been following what we commonly call the Galilean ministry of Jesus, because it's the aspect of his ministry that was centered in Galilee. He went throughout the towns, the villages, the cities of Galilee. He preached where he could. He did the work of the gospel. But now what we find at the beginning of Luke chapter 9 is that Jesus is going to enter into sort of a different phase of that Galilean ministry where he's going to very consciously delegate that work beyond his own ability to do something to his disciples. You'll see what I mean right here in verse 1. It says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, we've already had the presence and the selection of the twelve disciples described for us way back in Luke chapter 6. There we're told how Jesus took these men and called them together and gave them a special role of being his students, his disciples. We do want to remind ourselves that there were more than just 12 people that followed Jesus. There was actually a larger group of disciples, and then there was a group that even went beyond that that were sort of occasional disciples. But there was something special about these specific 12 that Jesus took a focus upon. And he gathered these 12 together, it tells us, verse 1, he called his 12 disciples together, and now he was getting ready to delegate some of his work to them. Now, I just want you to think of what Jesus did. Jesus traveled around the region of Galilee. He would go into a village or a city, and he would preach there, and he would do supernatural good. If a person was demon-possessed, supernaturally he would minister the power of God to them. If they were ill, he would supernaturally come and bring some touch of healing to them. Jesus went and he did good, and he preached in these different villages. Jesus is going to do the same thing now, but through his delegated disciples. I mean, how simple is that? Guys, I just want you to go out, and what I've been doing, I want you to go out and do it in other places. You've seen me do it. You've been around with me for some several weeks at this point, some several months. You've got an idea of what I do. You've heard me teach. You've seen my example. Now you just go out there and do it. And there's something so natural, so beautiful, so organic about that uh, that's just sort of contagious about a healthy Christianity. A healthy Christianity just sees something by example. It sees it, yes, sometimes through specific training and teaching, but also just through the the, the life experience, the shared life of being one with another. And it says, okay, now you've seen what I do. Now you go out and do it someplace else. It's a very powerful and beautiful thing. Now notice this. When Jesus delegated the duties unto them, he also delegated the authority and the power to do it. Verse 1 says that he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. In other words, he didn't just call them to a job and then sort of boot them out and do it, but just like any good, well, I don't know if it's proper to call Jesus a manager in this occasion, but he's something like that, isn't he? A manager who gives people the responsibility to do things and sort of looks over their performance. He says, listen, I'm not just giving you the job. I'm giving you the power and the authority to do the job. And I don't know exactly how this worked, how Jesus transferred a measure of power and authority unto his delegated disciples, but he did. And he told them to go out and to do the work. Now, listen, it's very important to understand that when God calls us to do something, there will be an equipping available to do that work. Let's face it, sometimes we go out and we do a work when we're not called to do it. And we find out that we weren't called because we didn't have the equipping or the resources. 
There's other times when you genuinely were called to do a particular work. God was calling you, but you did not take advantage of the equipping that God had offered you. And so that can result in trouble as well. But when ministry is done right, not only is there a calling to do it, but there's an equipping, a training, an authority, a power to go out and do it. So they went out and did it. Now, that's one obvious thing from this. I want to point out another obvious thing that's sort of subtle there, but I want you to see it there in verse 1. He said, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I want you to see that there's a separation there. Sometimes you'll hear people in the modern world say, you know, back then they were all superstitious and they thought that every disease was caused by a demonic spirit. And so they didn't know the difference between somebody who was diseased and someone who was demon-possessed. So they just said every diseased person is demon-possessed because that's how they thought in their pre-scientific, un-sophisticated age. I want you to see very clearly here in verse 1, Jesus delineates, no, I entirely know there's a difference between somebody who's sick and needs healing and someone who's demon-possessed and needs deliverance. There's a difference between the two. And I'll admit that sometimes there's a crossover. Occasionally in the Gospels, we have somebody who is afflicted with some demonic presence in their life that results in a sickness, but not largely. Largely, there's a separation between the two, and the Scriptures themselves are aware of this separation. But notice this as well. Verse 2 says that he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. Guys, get out there. Now, again, as it was true in the ministry of Jesus, I think it's important that we order these things correctly in our minds. Some people have the conception of Jesus that he was, for the most part, a miracle worker who occasionally preached. And I don't think that's the right conception at all. Jesus' fundamental calling was as a preacher, but who also did supernatural works of good anywhere he could find the opportunity. And that's exactly the order that he gave his disciples to do. He said, I want you to go out and preach the kingdom of God. Let everybody know, hey, the kingdom is here. The king is here. Get ready for it right now. God is gathering a kingdom community, and you can be part of that kingdom community. And we remind ourselves that this was such a necessary message there among the first century Jewish people of Galilee and of Judea and of that whole general area. Because even though they had a high messianic expectation, they had a completely wrong idea of what the kingdom of God was all about. They saw the kingdom of God mainly in terms of political and social power. For them, that was the pinnacle of the kingdom. And no, they had it to be corrected by announcing what the true nature of the kingdom was and who the king was. One more thing before I sort of wrap up these first couple verses. Don't you think it's interesting that Jesus used the available media of his day? What was the available media of his day? Well, pretty much a guy going out and talking. That was the available media. I I mean, yes, they had writing and such, but they didn't have printing presses. There wasn't a large distribution of books and pamphlets. They they certainly copied the scriptures as much as they could, and they were valued and known. But Jesus made use of the media that was available to him right then. Sometimes people think that, well, there's, there's something intrinsically sort of wrong or unspiritual about using... Uh, you know, broadcast or television or internet or, you know, whatever you might use to advance it. I don't think so at all. I think that if Jesus were doing his ministry today as he did it some 2,000 years ago, that he also would use all available media. 
He used what he had back then, which was basically to send out other preachers. Jesus was, can I say it this way? He was broadcasting. It wasn't just one man speaking to a bunch of people. I'll send out 12 guys to speak to a bunch of people, and the work will get done even more broadly. So he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick, to do good with a supernatural empowering as much was possible for them. And again, this is just very natural for us to take this upon our own selves, to say, yes, Jesus, in some way you commissioned me to do the same thing. Lord, how can I be a proclaimer of your kingdom in whatever place you've put me? Surely there's some way that you've given me that I can testify to the fact that there is a king and that the kingdom of God makes a difference in my life. Show me how to do that in a way that will be attractive and wise to others. And secondly, Lord, is there some way that you would use me in a supernatural way to do good? You know, maybe that next person you meet at work or something like that or at school or in your neighborhood or something like that who has a real problem or or who has some illness or something like that, instead of just only giving them good advice, maybe you pray for them that God would heal them. Maybe you pray for them that God would touch them in a supernatural way. Because Jesus said, listen, I'm going to send you out not only to preach the kingdom of God, but also to do good with a supernatural empowerment. Verse 3. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The first thing Jesus told them to do was, and I'm oversimplifying this, of course, but I'll say it nonetheless. The first thing Jesus told them to do was to pack light, which is wonderful advice on any trip that you're taking. Matter of fact, I think there should be more good teaching on this before we do a missions trip or something like that. Hey, everybody, pack light because Jesus told you to pack light. But no, he told them to do this for a very specific reason purpose. He told them, verse 3, take nothing for the journey. They didn't need sophisticated equipment to preach a simple message. And too many things would get in the way of the message that they wanted to preach. And by the way, I think that that's a question that individuals and that churches should be asking all the time. Yes, you're doing good ministry. Yes, you're you're endeavoring to get the word of Jesus's gospel out, to get the kingdom of God. But have you ever stopped and asked yourself, What are we doing that gets in the way of that? How are we limiting what we're trying to do? And Jesus said, I want you to cast off all the ballast, so to speak. I want you to run as lean as you can so that nothing gets in the way. Now, this was especially relevant to the culture of that day because at that very time, there was a rule among the rabbis that you could not enter the temple area with a staff, with working shoes on, or with a money bag because you wanted to avoid even the appearance of being engaged in any kind of other trade or work. You said, no, I'm on a holy mission. And the disciples were to communicate by everything that they had, not just by the words they spoke, but by everything they had. We are given over to a sacred occupation, and we're going to be focused upon that. That's why it says there in verse 3, take neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. 
The second thing that this did that was very important, not only did it communicate an attitude that says, no, we're sort of lean and mean and not going to let anything get in the way. The second thing it communicated in a very important way was it said this. It said, we are depending upon God every step of the way. I don't know how to express it fully, but there is just something powerful and beautiful when ministry is done with a sense of great dependence upon God. And sometimes that dependence needs to be manifested by just saying, I'm going to cast off everything else and run it as lean as we possibly could. You know, when uh, we uh, got ready to leave the church where I was pastoring in Simi Valley, and we felt the call to go to Germany and become missionaries, and that's a very different thing altogether. You know, when... blessedly, many times, it's not always true, of course, but blessedly, in America, many times when you're a pastor of a congregation, especially if it's an established congregation, you get a paycheck. You know, there's just sort of a regular payroll thing, and the, 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 the tithes and the offerings of God's people, somebody's managing that money, and it's being, there's, there's a paycheck. You just kind of get a paycheck every week. Well, typically, not always, but it was certainly the case for us, when you're a missionary, you don't get a paycheck every week. You just kind of step out and whatever God's people and supporting churches provide, that's just what you get from month to month. And sometimes you get more and sometimes you get less and you just trust that God will provide it week by week, month by month along the way. Well, you know what was funny about this? When we were explaining this to our children, the reaction of one of our children was simply this. They go, no, I'm sorry, you're not going to do this. You're not going to go out on the mission. Well, why not? Why is this not going to work? He goes, you guys don't have enough money to do this. And we just simply explained, we just left, well, look, if God's in it, it's going to happen. And we went from this, and I got to say, it, it, it was such a blessing for Ingalil and I to see how it worked, especially in the lives of our children. How you could just go out and just believe that God would provide, and he did. And he provided beautifully, and he provided wonderfully. And it was just a very blessed thing to see from month to month how we would do that. Well, listen, you know, I mean, there's a real place for us to say, God, how do you want me to apply that principle? How do you want me just to step out and just trust that you're going to provide along the way? That's what the disciples were to do. Now, the other thing that they were to do was to go from place to place with an attitude that says, I'm going to minister where there's an open door. Look at it there in verse 5. He says, and whoever will not receive you, in other words... As they went from place to place, their job wasn't primarily to change people's minds. They were to persuasively present the message, but if their listeners didn't receive it, they would leave, and they would shake the very dust off of their feet as they left. In other words, they would go into a place, and they would start presenting the message, and if people were like, boo, we don't want to hear that, get off the stage, which is how it could happen to open-air preaching. Listen, I mean, I'll tell you, that's been my experience with open-air preaching, Sometimes people receive it, and sometimes people don't. And if they sort of boo you off the stage, what you do is you don't get mad, you don't get angry, you don't start calling down thunderbolts from heaven. You just say, goodbye, I'm leaving. I'll look for somebody who does want to listen to what I have to say. But Jesus told him to do this. He told him that as they left, and this was radical, I'm almost, I'm almost surprised that Jesus said this. He said, when you leave, you shake the dust of your feet off that city when you leave. Now, what did that mean? That was a practice that many ancient Jews did when they left a Gentile city. If they had to go into a Gentile city and do business, yeah, they would do it. But as they left the city, when they kind of got out of the city limits, they would stop and they would shake the dust off their feet. 
They would do it off of both feet. Why? Because they wanted to dramatically act out, I don't want anything from this wretched city to go with me as I go on my way. And Jesus said, basically, I want you to regard those Jewish villages and cities that won't receive you, that boo you off the stage. I want you to regard them as if they were Gentiles. And I just want you to move on your way and and find somebody who will receive the message. And please, that's just what we've got to understand is that God opens up hearts. And the most precious thing you can find in evangelism is a heart that's prepared and opened. And if somebody just isn't open, well, then with goodwill and with, you know, blessing, move on to somebody else who will receive the message. That's what Jesus told them to do. So in all this instruction for what they should do, what they should take, what they shouldn't take, the attitude they should have, the dependence upon God, upon all of that, I find perhaps the most remarkable words right there in verse 6. Did you see the words in verse 6 that I think are so wonderful? It says this, so they departed. Here it is. You know what the most wonderful thing is? They actually did it. I find myself more and more just wonderfully astounded when Jesus tells somebody to do something and they do it. So they went out, okay, Jesus, we'll do it. We know we've just been following around with you. We know we've just been, you know, listening and, and letting you take the lead. Now you want us to go out on their own. And I don't know, there's probably many of you in this room, you've had that exact same experience. You went out on a, on a, you know, a missions team sometime. You went out to, to do some local work in the community. You went out on some outreach or some work or something like that. And suddenly it was just sort of thrust to you to do it. And you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this. I don't think it, maybe this isn't my calling. I just got to do it. <clears throat> but you did it and God blessed it, right? And suddenly you went, I, I guess God can use me. And what a thrill it is. You remember, don't you? Do you remember the first time it clicked in your mind and in your heart, God can use me to touch somebody else's life? If you think back, that's like, it's such the most amazing feeling. And I, maybe there's a few people here tonight, you've never really known that. Oh boy, you don't know how good it can be. It's just one of the most amazing feelings in all the world to know what it's like to be an instrument in the hand of God. And so that's a good thing that God wants. And I'm sure the disciples enjoyed it. I'm sure the disciples experienced some of that. This idea of just sort of kicking them out and making them do the work, it kind of reminds me of a story from the life of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon started when he was a very young man to preach the gospel and to serve the Lord. And so this is what Spurgeon did as a very, very young man. He, I don't know, he was probably 15, 16 years old. Uh, An older pastor told him and another young guy about the same age as Spurgeon was, to go to a village and preach. So they said, well, okay, we'll do it. So as they're walking on the road together to this little village to go do the job of preaching, Spurgeon turns to his friend and he says, "Um, you know, what are you going to preach? The guy says, I'm not preaching. I thought you were preaching. And Spurgeon says, I've never preached a message before. I don't know how to preach a message. I thought you were preaching. And they argued back and forth along the way. And it turned out that Spurgeon lost the argument and he had to preach at that village. And that was his first experience of having to do it, walking on a road thinking he wasn't going to be doing it at all, but yet God used it. You know, it's just those kind of circumstances that God oftentimes uses to open up the door to something very, very wonderful. So that's what they did. Verse 6 says they went out. They had this amazing experience. Now look at it here, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch, head of all that was done by him, uh, excuse me, 
heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. These are some fascinating verses. First of all, I want you to notice here, verse 7, it says, he was perplexed. He heard what was being said about Jesus, and it confused him. He was confused because some people said that it was John the Baptist who was risen from the dead. Some people said that it was Elijah who had appeared, and other people thought that it was some of the old prophets that had risen again. Now, who is this man who's thinking these thoughts? This is Herod Antipas, or sometimes called Herod Antipater. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. And he was nowhere near the kind of ruler his great father was, Herod the Great. Rather, he was a lesser ruler and sort of a vain, corrupt man. But he ruled over the region of Galilee as a sub-king under Roman dominion. Well, Herod, this ruler of Galilee, begins to hear all these things about a man who works stupendous miracles, about a man who teaches amazing things, about this rabbi who's traveling around the region of Galilee and really shaking up things. And Herod says, well, who is this guy? Get the word out and get back to me. And people say, well, maybe it's John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. Now, that answer would have concerned Herod the Great a great deal. Excuse me, not Herod the Great, Herod Antiper a great deal. Why would it concern Herod? Does anybody know? Because he's the guy who killed John the Baptist. And if the man that you murdered is risen from the dead, that's a little bit of a concern, isn't it? So John the Baptist, that's... Or maybe some people thought it was Elijah, and other people thought it was one of the prophets. Now, it's very interesting to connect each one of the three. Of course, you know about John the Baptist and why that would be relevant to Herod. Why Herod might think, here's a man who's a mighty prophet. Here's a man respected by so many people. Here's a man who's in the midst of this kind of... Maybe it is John the Baptist come back again. Maybe that's the case. But other people thought, no, perhaps it's Elijah. Why would anybody think it's Elijah? Because in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, there's a promise that Elijah will come before the Messiah. And so people thought, well, maybe it's Elijah who's come. If it's not John the Baptist, maybe it's Elijah. But then there was another option that people considered, and this option was that he was one of the prophets. And where would they get this idea? They would get this idea because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Verses 15 through 19, Moses promised that after him would come another prophet and that they should listen to this prophet. Now, it's very fascinating to try to figure out who exactly Moses was prophesying. It is possible that Moses prophesied of Elijah, but more likely he was prophesying of Jesus himself. And so the people are asking, does he fit into this box, John the Baptist? Does he fit into this box, Elijah? Does he fit into this box, the prophet or one of the other prophets that was promised in the Old Testament? And so this was the worry on Herod's mind. So what did he do? Look at it here in verse 9. It says, so he sought to see him. Herod says this, I want to see this guy, Jesus. Bring him to me. Let's arrange a meeting. I want to have a sit down here. And this is what I want you to know. It's so interesting. Jesus did not say, well, I'll go speak to Herod. Now, don't you find that a little bit fascinating? 
don't you think that if Jesus heard that some king wanted to see him and hear him preach, that Jesus should have been right out in front saying, yes, I'll see him. Yes, I want to speak to him. Maybe I can persuade him. But listen, there was something so corrupt, so vain, so wrong in Herod's heart that Jesus knew that Herod was an insincere seeker. He wants to see me, yeah, maybe to kill me, just like he killed John the Baptist, right? If not that, he wants to see me only because he's interested in the miraculous things that I do, and he wants to come and see me do tricks. It's very interesting because you go on in the Gospel of Luke, there's two other occasions where Herod, this Herod, is mentioned. The first occasion is in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus was told that Herod wanted to kill him. Hey, Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. What are you going to do about this? This is what Jesus said. He said, Luke chapter 13, verse 32, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow the third day. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I started the wrong place. This is what he replied. Luke chapter 13, verse 32. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. And tomorrow, the third day, I shall be perfected. What did he say? Yeah, you go tell that fox, which was not a compliment. You go tell that guy. I'm trying to think of another term, but maybe I shouldn't try to think of another term. You just go tell that fox. Forget it. I'm going to do these miraculous works, and I'm doing them even now, but he's going to see none of it. That was the first of the two subsequent mentions. You want to know the second time in the Gospel of Luke that Herod met Jesus? It was when Herod was visiting Jerusalem at Passover time, and a prisoner was sent over to him from Pontius Pilate. Pilate, wanting to wash his hands of this whole messy Jesus affair, sent Jesus from his own court over to Herod, and he said, you rule over Galilee, you take over. And it's fascinating to see what Luke says happened in that occasion. This is what happened. It's that Herod wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him. He said, Jesus, here you are. Do me a trick. Do me a miracle. I hear you do all these miracles. Do one for me. Come on, Jesus. Wow me. You know, give me a little spiritual thrill. Entertain me. Do you know what Jesus did? First of all, Jesus did absolutely no miracle for Herod. And when Herod asked him many questions, Jesus didn't answer him a thing. I'm fascinated by this. Because I normally don't think of Jesus not answering somebody's questions. But this is what it shows us. There is a such thing as somebody who is such an insincere seeker that they'll have none of it from Jesus. Not every seeker is sincere. Not everybody who says, Jesus, oh, do something for me. Oh, Jesus, answer my questions. Not all of them are sincere. And to those who have a certain frame of heart, like Herod, Jesus says, forget it. You're going to get none of it from me. Why don't you change your heart and then, and then come to me and I'll speak to you. Herod treated Jesus with contempt because when Jesus wouldn't answer his questions, when Jesus wouldn't perform the miracle, do you know what Herod did? poured out contempt upon him, 
mocked him with the purple robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Just think about that. The next time you think about Jesus and the agonies preceding his crucifixion, Herod gave him the purple robe. So we hear about it here. Way back in Luke chapter 9, he wanted to see him, but Jesus had none of it. Meanwhile, the apostles are out doing their work. Look what happens here, verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done, and they took them and went aside privately in a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Wasn't this wonderful? You see, they come back, and now, did you see it here in verse 10? Now they're called apostles. I know they've been called apostles before in the gospel. I just think it's pretty cool here how in verses 1 and 2, he sends them out as disciples, and they come back to him as apostles. They come back as men who know something about what it is to be used by the Lord, who have taken those steps of faith, who have a legacy of stepping out in faith and seeing God work. You know what? That's what I love to see in a man or a woman. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards, and I hope you do. I encourage Bible knowledge. I happen to like to teach people the Bible. I like people of interest. I Bible like this. But listen, there's something beautiful about a man or a woman who in some way or another knows what it is in their life to go out and to take some steps of faith and to see God meet them along the way. And that's exactly what the apostles came back. They were so excited. They were so pumped up. You can just imagine how they came back, and it's like, yes, Jesus, let us tell you all about it. It says it right there in verse 10. They told him all that they had done, and I can just imagine how excited they were. Jesus, I prayed for this woman, and she actually got healed. Jesus, I came to this guy who was demon-possessed, and the demon actually left him. Jesus, we preached the kingdom of God, and people heard it. Oh, yeah, we got booed off the stage at this place and at that place, but in other places, people heard it. We went to the synagogues and preached. We went on the open-air markets, we preached. And sometimes we just sat down with people one-on-one and we preached the good news to them. By the way, when we think of the disciples going out, I hope that you're not only thinking that they preach in synagogues. I bet they did whenever they had the opportunity. But, you know, they also just talked to people on the street. They also just got into conversations in the modern-day equivalent of sitting down over a cup of coffee. That's some of the best preaching that's ever done. Don't you know that? Some of the best preaching that's ever done in the kingdom of God is done one-on-one between two people who sit down and share their hearts together. So it's a good thing. They come back. Jesus says, let's get away. Let's go to this place, Bethsaida. We'll go out in the wilderness. We'll just have a little getaway. Just you and I, disciples, you've served me so well. Jesus says, let me serve you. Let me bless you. Let's get away and do it. And you know what? It all gets spoiled. After their successful ministry trip, They come back to Jesus. Jesus says, let's get away. And then you know what spoils it? Look at it here in verse 11. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who had need of healing. Hey, disciples, let's get away. You guys did such a good job on the preaching tour I sent you out on. Man, I'm so excited to hear about it. But, man, you guys are whooped. Look at all that you've expended in your time and your labor and your energy and all that. You guys are whooped. Let's get away for a few days. We'll just build you back up. I just want to bless you. I just want to see you. Oh, that's great. Let's get away to Bethsaida. We'll go away in here and just hang out for a few days with Jesus. And you know what messes it up? A bunch of needy people. A bunch of needy people come, and I wonder if the disciples didn't have a bad attitude about it. I don't know that they did. I'll be honest with you. Scriptures don't say that they had a bad attitude about it, but I might have had a bad attitude about it. I might have been, well, you know, who are all these people getting in the way? Don't they know that we're people who do ministry and these people are in the way? Look at that, verse 11. When the multitudes knew it, they 
followed him. Didn't they know that they'd gone away just to be away with Jesus and to get away from the multitudes? But look at the beautiful attitude of Jesus right there in verse 11. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Isn't that wonderful? Guys, I know our intention was to get away and just take some time off and spend these few days together. But look at these multitudes. They want to hear about the kingdom of God. There's sick and demon-possessed people among them that we want to serve. Let's go at it, guys. And they did. Jesus received them, and he healed those who needed healing. I love those three aspects of it. First of all, it says, he received them. That speaks of an attitude. Jesus did not push them away. He received them. And listen, it's something that everybody who does ministry has to really be on guard for, and you've got to bring yourself back to it. Sometimes you'd be busy doing your work. You know what? Well, I'll just give you an example. Sometimes I'll be busy studying and studying, and something that's personal come up with a need to me, and it's so easy for me to think, you're interrupting my work of ministry right now. It's just natural, isn't it? Because I'm a task-oriented person. I've got to get the studying done, and I'm in the midst of it, and I'm enjoying it. But whoa, whoa, whoa. If I'm thinking in my right mind which isn't always the case, but if I'm thinking in my right mind, I say, no, this person is ministry. You can't interrupt ministry for ministry. This person is ministry. Let me see how I can help them. Let me see how their need can be met. So first of all, Jesus had the right attitude, but secondly, Jesus taught them. Notice very plainly there, verse 11, it says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. As was his normal emphasis in his work, Jesus proclaimed a message to the multitudes, but then thirdly, he healed those. He didn't only give them spiritual instruction, but he also did good among them with supernatural empowering. That's what God calls us to do as well. So now verse 12. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we're in a deserted place here. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people, for there's about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Okay, notice, first of all, verse 12 tells us that it was after a long day. It says, when the day began to wear away, then the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Send the multitudes away. Now, look, I, I admit that I'm sort of a member. I don't know what standing I have in the club, but I am a member of the Beat Up on the Disciples Club, right? I mean, we always kind of want to look for a stick to beat on the disciples and say how bad and carnal they were. And this is a prime indication. We say, oh, look at them. They just get rid of the multitudes, Jesus. We don't like them. You know what? I just want to say, in defense of the disciples, it may not have been like that at all. After all, look at them. It says... Send the multitude away so that they can lodge and get provisions. Jesus, look, let's just be practical here. These people are out in the middle of nowhere. They need a place to stay. They need food to eat. And Jesus, you know, the, the, the food trucks aren't pulling up out here. There's just nothing to, for them to eat. I, I just want you to be sensitive to the fact that there may be no ill or short-tempered attitude on the disciples at all. It may just be that they're being entirely practical here. And who can blame them? Look, you and I, come on now. You thought it, didn't you? As soon as I started reading this, you go, 
Jesus is going to feed them. Jesus is going to feed them miraculously. Feeding of the 5,000. I know how this works. Come on, disciples. Why didn't you see it? Look, if you put yourself in the disciples' sense, could you have predicted this? Could any of before Jesus did it, could anybody of you have said, oh, yeah, I know exactly how this is going to work. Just all he needs is five loaves and two fishes. Just bring him that, and he'll feed 5,000 men plus the women and children. Just go ahead and do that. This was so totally out of their expectation that I don't blame at all. They're just being practical. So can you imagine, verse 13, how astounded they must have been when Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Now, I don't know, in my mind, and of course, I, nobody can prove this, but don't you just imagine Jesus saying that with a great big smile on his face? You know, like, you give them something to eat. Knowing that, that their mind just couldn't even go there. Okay, Jesus, you get, you know, can you explain more? It's just, nothing's going to happen with this. This request must have sounded strange, shocking, or just plain funny. It was very obvious to them. There were just not the resources anywhere. And so Jesus was doing a challenge here. He's challenging them to think in a way. And I just want you to think about this. God can meet our needs in totally unexpected ways. You and I do exactly what the disciples do all the time. When there's a need, when there's a problem, when there's a crisis, we figure out how God's going to fix it. I don't condemn us for doing that. That's just human nature. But what we have to realize is sometimes God will meet those needs in the expected ways, but sometimes God will say, I'm just going to pull out a mind blower here and do it in a completely different way, a way you never even thought of. And that's what he's going to do here. So here, Jesus and the disciples, they see the great multitude, and Jesus says, I am going to feed them. Now look, for a long, long time, Christians have seen a spiritual analogy here. How Jesus not only in a real time and place fed the multitude that was hungry, but Jesus knows how to feed a hungry soul today. He can feed the multitude today. You know, I, I like to illustrate it this way. You could say this. The people are hungry. Can you, can you imagine the hungry multitude out there? The people are hungry. And what do the atheists and the skeptics do? The atheists, atheists and the skeptics say, you're not really hungry. No, I'm hungry. I really am. I'm, no, you're not hungry. It's just, just a fig, that's not hunger you feel. You don't really feel that. No, no, no. You, I, and you go back and forth with them. Or, or the people are hungry and what? There's empty religionists who will say, here's a ceremony, here's a ritual, do that, that'll feed your hunger. Or or the people are hungry, and there's religious showmen out there who will give them all sorts of special effects and, and fancy things and big technology and a great big show and say, this is it, now you're not hungry anymore, right? Or the people are hungry, and the entertainer gets up there, and he gives them loud and fast action, and people feel like they don't even have a moment to think, but none of it feeds them. None of it. Telling somebody that they're not really hungry when they are hungry, that's not going to feed them. Giving them an empty ceremony, a ritual, that's not going to feed them. An emphasis on entertainment or the show, that's not going to feed them. But listen, Jesus has the bread of life, and that's what he's going to bring to the people. But first, he says, verse 14, Make them sit down in groups of 50. Now, this is interesting. Jesus wasn't going to give them just a quick meal. 
He wanted them to sit down and to recline. You know how it is in our modern age. You can just imagine. I just know the difference between when I was a child and now when I'm an adult. I just think how much when I was a child, how nightly dinner was such a ritual in our home. I mean, it just happened all the time. It's like clockwork. Now, so often, we don't even sit down when we eat, do we? We're, we're eating on our feet or walking along or driving or whatever it is. Jesus says, no, I don't want this to be a quick snack that you grab on the way. I want everybody to sit down. You go ahead and sit down. So he said, make them sit down in groups of 50. We're going to have a banquet. We're going to have a real meal. Jesus was saying this, I'm not just interested in filling your stomach. I'm not just here to give you a protein bar and send you on your way. I want you to, I want you to sup with me. We're going to have a great big dinner together. And that's what Jesus said was going to happen. Verse 16, then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Jesus took the very little that they had. And what was the little? Five loaves, two fishes. And by the way, the fish weren't like some giant king salmon either. The fish were probably little sardine type of fish that you'd pretty much just eat the whole thing. And the loaves weren't that big either. The loaves were probably, you know, about the size of what we would call a dinner roll or something like that. Little flat loaves like a pita bread, that kind of thing. Five loaves, two fish, and by the way, the disciples didn't even have them. In the Gospel of John, we find out where did they get the five loaves and the two fish. They shook down a little kid for him, didn't they? There's a little boy there that had the lunch, and uh, somehow they talked him into using it. And the little boy, this beautiful gesture of giving. Can you imagine how hard it was for that little boy to give up his lunch for everybody? But Jesus, you know, just took it from him and received it. And what did he do? Verse 16, looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He blessed the meal. He blessed the Lord for giving the food, and that was the blessing upon the food. I I just want you to have it clear in your mind here. The idea of praying before a meal is not primarily to bless the food. This is going to come as a shock to some of you. I'm just saying the biblical and the Christian idea It is not primarily saying, Lord, bless this food. I'm not saying that's a bad prayer to pray. I'm just saying that the primary impulse should be to thank and to bless God for giving you food. Lord, I am blessed that I have this food to eat. Thank you for blessing me. Now, if you want to ask God to bless the food, okay, that's great. That's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't forget to thank God who has blessed you with And it wasn't much food, but Jesus said, Lord, I'm going to bless you for what I have. This is all I have, this little food. And then what did he do? Verse 16, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. How did this work? I don't know. I imagine, and it would be great to see the video of this when we get to heaven, but don't you imagine Jesus taking, you know, one of these pieces of bread, tearing off a piece, putting it in a basket, tearing off a piece, tearing off, and he just keeps tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing and going on. Until how many? Until well over 5,000 people are fed. Now, this is what I want you to understand. 
did the people know where the bread came from? No. If you were there in one of those groups of 50 sitting down, waiting for your food, listen, all you knew is that a disciple came to you with a basket full of bread. You didn't even know that Jesus had miraculously done something with it. You just knew that Jesus put on the most amazing meal that you ever had. And don't you got to think there was something special about the taste of that bread and that fish? I can't prove it, but I I don't think it would have been subpar. I think it would have been wonderful, wonderful stuff. And here Jesus feeds the whole multitude. And it says beautifully, verse 17, so they all ate and were filled. They were filled. They couldn't eat anymore. Now, this is something I just want you to be aware of, that in the ancient world, that was a rare thing. It was a special occasion when you could eat as much as you wanted to. Most people lived at such on the bare edge of poverty in the ancient world that for 5,000 people to sit down and eat as much, you mean I can keep eating? Yeah, keep eating. I'm not full yet. Well, just eat until you're full. Eat until you don't want to eat anymore. Really? That much? Yes, eat that much. Everybody ate until they were filled And then we know from the other Gospels that they gathered up the fragments. Now listen, this this is something that should really speak to our soul. Jesus can provide, sometimes miraculously, sometimes in a way that doesn't seem so miraculous, Jesus can provide for every single need that we have. That's exactly what he did for him. Did you know that in the ancient catacombs, one of the common motifs painted on the walls is a fish and bread. Now, you would think if that was just celebrating communion, it would be with bread and a cup. No, but oftentimes they did it with a fish and bread because they remembered this meal of multiplication that Jesus did. And it spoke to them very powerfully about the fact that Jesus can meet every need. All right, now I just want you to think about somebody. Think about somebody there at that feeding of the 5,000 who walked away hungry, who walked away unsatisfied. Now, why? What could possibly happen? What would be the reason why somebody would walk away unsatisfied? Well, I can think of two reasons why somebody would walk away unsatisfied. Number one, they might walk away unsatisfied because they just simply refused to eat. The bread was right there in front of them, but they said, no, I'm not going to eat it. Number two, the second reason that might have happened that somebody couldn't eat or wasn't filled, I should say, is maybe the disciples screwed it up. I mean, after all, the disciples had the responsibility to take what Jesus had so gloriously provided and bring it out to the people. And it's possible, at least theoretically, we know it didn't happen, but it's at least theoretically possible that the disciples would have missed somebody. Oh, there's somebody out there. You didn't bring the basket, but you didn't bring the food to them. No, it was the disciples' job to do that. And I guess what I'm just trying to say is it wasn't Jesus' fault. If your need is unmet, it's not Jesus' fault. If your heart is aching tonight or there's some void or you feel that you need something from Jesus and it's just not there, you can't lay hold of it. I just want to assure you, it's not Jesus' fault. He has provided it. Maybe it's been the fault of some poor, weak servant of God who hasn't served you well. That's possible. Or, Or maybe, and I hope I can say this without sounding condemning, but maybe, maybe it's you who just hasn't taken and received. But it's not Jesus' fault. He has it there for you to receive from him now. And I'm going to pray that we'd have that heart, that mind that would receive it from him. Lord Jesus, we believe that you sit us down to the richest of banquets. 
that you're here to fill and to fulfill our every need. Lord, sometimes you do it in a way that seems so natural. Other ways, times you do it, Lord, in a way that is so evidently supernatural that we're just grateful for it. So, Jesus, would you now go to each individual heart that needs something from you here tonight? Lord, won't you be their provider? Give up courage to those who fear. Give forgiveness to those who feel stained. Give trust to those who are doubting. Give grace to those who are bound up in works. Pour out your love upon your people, Lord, and help us to receive what you so beautifully give to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.